Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. Uh, While I have you here, please consider supporting Youth Empowerment and Support Services, otherwise known as YES. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, YES provides immediate and low-barrier overnight and day shelter, temporary supportive housing, and individualized wraparound supports for young people aged 15 to 24. They work collaboratively within a network of care focused on the prevention of youth homelessness by providing youth with the necessary supports to stabilize their housing, improve their well-being, build life skills, connect with community, and avoid re-entry into homelessness. Learn more about how to donate or otherwise support YES by visiting YESS.org. Hey, this is Adam from Toronto, and I support Creative Control because Vish is full stop one of the best arts interviewers in Canada, or anywhere in the world, really. He approaches every episode like he's known the artist for years, creating a conversational atmosphere that gets straight to the heart of the work. No one else in podcasting gets it quite right like he does, with a mixture of meticulous research, wise artistic insights, and well-humored personal connections. I proudly support Vish and Creative Control on Patreon. You should, too. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. 
Heather O'Neill is an award-winning and celebrated Canadian novelist, poet, and short story writer based in her hometown of Montreal, Quebec. A best-selling author, O'Neill's latest book is called When We Lost Our Heads, which is out in Canada and the United States on February 1st via HarperCollins, with a worldwide release coming later in the year 2022. Set in Montreal during the Victorian era, When We Lost Our Heads is a compelling work about two young revolutionary women whose friendship is so intense it not only threatens to destroy them, it changes the course of history. Heather returned to this show to discuss the plot and inspiration behind When We Lost Our Heads, having to leave her apartment in Montreal, and also places like Amherst, Massachusetts and Paris, France that put up plaques to commemorate heritage moments by significant people or let you tour through the homes they once lived in. The Industrial Revolution and the French Revolution, gender, sexuality, classism, feminism, pornography, family bonds, and how each are explored in her new novel, bringing down the aristocracy and Twitter mobs, finding her own voice and confidence on Twitter in recent years, Wes Anderson's universe, and a Heather O'Neill joint, working with her daughter, Arizona, future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network, with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast, and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash Control. Plus in-kind support from the likes of Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is the 664th episode of Creative Control, featuring the brilliant and bold Heather O'Neill with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Heather. How's it going? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. It's nice to see you again. It's been a few years. I feel like the last time we were in the same vicinity was probably at the Eden Mills Writers Festival. Does that ring a bell to you? It does. I remember that well, though it seems like a lifetime ago. We were practically children. <laughs> it was almost, I think it's 2022. That was like, what, nine years ago? Eight, nine years ago. Eight Maybe. years ago. That's incredible. Anyway, it's lovely to see you again. Where in the world are you? I'm in Montreal. Same old, same old? Well, no, I live in a different apartment. Oh, okay. Change around during the pandemic. A little adventure. <laughs> you moved You moved during a pandemic? I had no choice. They were like, oh. um, my building was literally falling apart. I had been there 16 years and was on St. Urban. And it's like, there are times when I was, you know, going to the bathroom in the morning and just hold up an umbrella. There was water leaking everywhere. Oh, my it God. It was a grotesque place. But I had such an affection for it. And it was um, it was right next to the building that Mordecai Richler grew up in. So I always felt there was like good literary vibes until, you know, the city came and was like, this building is condemned. Out you go. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. I couldn't psychologically get out myself. <laughs> they were the they were the parents in your dynamic there. Like, you got to yeah. get out of this is not. All right. Well, I appreciate that. You're like, were you born and raised in Montreal? I can't recall. I believe that's true, isn't it? I am, yes. Yeah. So you've you've lived, this is 16 years. That's a long time. Are you happy with your place? Looks nice. I can see it on this thing. Looks nice. Are you happy? 
It's fabulous. Like my yeah. health has um, improved greatly because there's no mold in the walls or rats yeah. and whatnot. The I don't rats? know. I get very yeah in the old place, but I get I get very attached. I was very attached to that apartment because I had written all my novels in it, and you know, and it was like this apartment on Mile End, and it was the literally the only one I could find when I was a single mom that I could afford, yeah. and so I just had all these good vibes there and I was I sometimes get very superstitious and don't want to mess things up but yeah now I'm living in a normal apartment it has lights running water it's incredible (laughs) no umbrellas in the morning yeah that's all sounds great now this old building it sounded like it needed to be condemned or was condemned is it still standing yeah they've got it at the inside so which is sad too yeah like from, from my perspective as a fan of yours that apartment is historic it should have been you know, a heritage site, and now it's been gutted. Is that what you're telling me? Exactly. I mean, I also thought it ought to be a heritage site. <laughs> it should be a plaque. Or put a plaque. A I know, plaque. like they do. Because yeah. I love that about Paris, how they just have plaques for everything. And it was like Michel Foucault used to sit in this park and <laughs> fed pigeons several times. Like yeah. Cyrano de Bergerac was stabbed in this alleyway. And just they just celebrate that. So yeah, I don't know if we we don't really do that in the same way. Although we totally should. In a tangential conversation about your new novel, which I love, and we'll talk about shortly. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> I was talking to my wife, and I was trying to remember that we, I believe, we visited Emily Dickinson's home, or whatever. Like, or I definitely her. Is it in Massachusetts? And we never looked this up after. Maybe you don't know either. But anyway, I'm pretty sure we went to like her. Her gravesite. Amherst. Amherst. That's where we were. That's okay. I was right in Amherst, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And I believe her home is there too. Can you go visit her home? Yes, I've been there. Yes, yeah, so I have too. And I thought of that. And, and that's what, honestly, and I'm not trying to, you know, stroke your ego here. That's what that apartment needs. It needs a tour of that place where you wrote your books. That's how I feel <laughs> in my heart. Does that make sense to you? Yes, because I actually. I love that going to see authors' houses. I did like a tour, this New England tour, and I went first to Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah. Then I passed new, uh, Edward Gorey and then Emily Dickinson and Louisa May Alcott and Thoreau's Pond and Herman Melville. Because they're all like the whole yeah. American Renaissance took place in such a small <laughs> area of, of New England. So you can just go and... And they let you into the houses and they have these really peculiar um, guides who've spent so much time doing it. They talk about the author as though they're alive and all their... (laughs) I feel like we did more than that. Like we were just trying to... We went for a wedding. We were there for a wedding. So we were just killing time. But I remember doing that. But we might have done more. Like you say, We maybe we did a whole tour and we just are blanking because of the children have eaten our memories, you know, because they're so exhausting all the time. But anyway... Anyway, that's what I think you deserve. Uh, but anyway, let's get to your... This is a fantastic... I have an arc <laughs> of it here, and I'm showing it to you like we're on a TV show, and I'm showing yes. it to the audience. But When We Lost Our Heads, it's a brilliant uh, book. Uh, I want you, first of all, for those who are just catching up to the existence of this thing, can you, in your own words, summarize uh, the action of this book in a way that doesn't give away the whole book and makes people want to read it? Well, it is a story set in Montreal... 
in the Victorian times, as I say in Canadian interviews, American ones, it's the Industrial Revolution. Um, <laughs> we're so close, and yet we're so dissimilar, and you have to do two different eras even. That's amazing. Anyway, we're so fractured. <laughs> and it is about, it takes place in two neighborhoods. One is, I call the Golden Mile, which is based on the Golden Square Mile in Montreal, which is the incredibly affluent area filled with old Victorian mansions. And when you go by, you can sort of, you almost feel the the old worldness of it and sort of a luxury that has disappeared. And then down below, I have the Squalid Mile, which actually physically doesn't exist anymore because it was built so shoddily and so quickly to absorb immigrants who are coming in to factories. Anyways, that's sort of, that's the setting of my yeah. book. But what it really is, is two young women, Mary Antoine and Sadie Arnett, who meet on the Golden Mile, and they develop a really obsessive, crazy, intense romantic, almost erotic um, passion for one another that's fraught with, I mean, there's just a dark edge to their friendship too, because they sort of validate each other's idiosyncrasies, which obviously leads to some folie à deux, which, you know, even on the first page of the book there, it begins with them having a duel with actual pistols yeah. and they're, when they're 12, start the book off with a bang and they kill somebody. And then it's like, then they just grow up and they all be, they just become strange, revolutionary, radical women who are refuting all the Victorian upper class ideas right. of what women should do. And then the women down below are also doing their own crazy revolution of young girls who are wearing little executioner spaces like masks over their face. It's, it's, it's a portrait of women at that time that explores just their rage and sexuality and creativity. Yeah, that's a thank you for summarizing it in such a way. Uh, I'm curious because there are historical echoes in the book of real people, real things, real places, but you've clearly adapted them. Is this some amalgam of history from your take or is this meant as some sort of corollary of figures and, and incidents that actually occurred? What it is, is it was inspired partially, like my my origin idea, but my first draft of an idea in my brain was I wanted to have these women in Victorian Montreal who were actually each inspired by a figure from the French Revolution. Yeah. And so it was like two historical points meeting and acting themselves out. Right. So and and some of so some of the events are real and based on you know they've always been kind of these women working uprisings and I was kind of looking into them and the dynamics of them and so I wanted one in these factories so yeah you know it's in a weird it's in a weird zone because I'll tell you I was reading it and then I started I had to get on like Wikipedia or something to be like wait a minute is this uh, Mary Robespierre is this Robespierre? And then I'd be like, you know, and initially I started reading it and my wife's like, oh yeah, Marie Antoine, that must be based on Marie Antoinette, right? I'm like, right. Okay, so wait, what happened with her? Because I can't remember, you know? So then I started doing all that stuff and then I realized I was maybe on the wrong path. Yeah, you totally were on the wrong path. But I mean, not exactly. I mean, everybody can do what they want with the text. But I had, I wrote it in such a way that if you know nothing about the French Revolution, you can just read it 
on the surface as a Victorian novel. These are just these these layers to give it <laughs> just some sort of like fun. Um, the character of Sadie Arnett, I had her original inspiration was the Marquis de Sade. That's what I said. I said that to I, my wife. I think it's the Marquis de Sade. That's exactly it. what I said. Okay, that's yeah. amazing. I was happy with myself <laughs> about that. Good. Thank you. Sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. So, no. So that she was based on the Marquis de Sade and just this idea. Because actually, it was for me, even approaching the Marquis de Sade to use as one of the characters was interesting because he's so incredibly problematic. You don't get more problematic than him. He mm-hmm. was incredibly abusive to women, kidnapped them, drugged them, just a litany of horrors in yeah. his personal life. But his texts kind of became bigger and used by philosophers about the idea of freedom and what it meant to be to act on all the impulses you have towards freedom. And then so many feminists that I really adore, like Simone de Beauvoir and Angela Carter, had written texts about him and how he actually kind of counterintuitively espoused the feminist cause in that he regarded motherhood as as a grotesque use of the female body mm. and lacking as horrific. And he was like, no, women's bodies are for sex and agency and doing things in the world. And this whole motherhood thing is a sham. So they kind of picked up on that idea as an interesting one because they were also trying to locate the female identity outside of motherhood. Right. Okay. And anyways, and I was so interested in having a young female be the mouth of the said and what, and what type of pornography she would write and she was interested in the philosophy of the bedroom and what it said, how people act in the bedroom and how that's a reflection of our sort of social dynamics. Right. Now you've paired off Marie and Sadie and then there are sort of other interlopers if you will in their in their lives as the their lives kind of converge and then diverge for quite a long time and then there's all these other mm-hmm. people involved at various points. But I I'm I'm thinking back on some of your other works and I feel like that notion of a dual soul comes up Often, Am I mischaracterizing your work? I do feel like you're very interested in a, a pairing of star-crossed friends or lovers or what, whatever. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this uh, feeling like I'm not confident enough to cite specific examples. But do you know where I'm coming from? This is just a glimmer in my memory. It's exactly. Yes, I agree exactly. I mean, I don't do it on purpose. But I've, I'm so interested in the idea of a relationship that's one of incredible intense intensity and love, but that is destructive. Mm. And how do people like that separate? And just how difficult separation is when you truly become bonded and have that obsessive attachment to someone. And for me, it just seems it's the most incredibly difficult thing. And even like people in toxic relationships are... You try and part, but you just keep returning. And it's like, you're so... And then each time you get more enmeshed in your insanity. But, um... So it's very hard. So I I always love that. Two characters who just, um... Are so attached to one another. And how they kind of separate to become independent. Yeah, like I appreciate that you... In a sense, you're romanticizing these gravitational pulls of these disturbing bodies. You know? But on the other hand... 
Do you know why you're interested in that? Does that come from your own experience of whatever? I don't want to pry. Although I do. I'm an interviewer. I don't want to pry too much. But do you feel like this is drawn from your own experience in relationships? Yeah, it's for me, it was based on friendships. And I found, like, even as a little girl, those friendships that I made, there was always a dark edge to it. And I think that edge comes from a competitiveness because... You grow with each other and you want to remain equal. So there's always that battle for equality. And I don't know. And then you have like weird jealous impulses. You have, um, you don't know why, but sometimes you just want them dead so you can be free of thinking of them. Because you feel like, oh my God, I would not be who I am without my friend. And I'm like, I hate that. (laughs) I wish they would really get run over by a truck. But at the same time, you totally adore them. And I found that so much of these aspects of friendship are never talked about. It's always this sugar-coated idea of friends. you know, being supportive and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, that's all fine. But come on. We know that the the relationships that we really get wild about are the ones that challenge us. And are they have, um, you know, like, as I was saying, a drop of hatred in them. Yeah. You've got these two central characters that have a certain amount of power, uh, whether it's, in Sadie's case, uh, fa- certain mental faculties that are superior to others. Uh, in Marie's case, it's affluence, it's wealth. And then they each have to respond to challenges to those things on some level or are torn apart from not only each other, but from their comfort zones on some level. So that's the adversity there. But within that, there's like classism, sexism, there's gender dynamics at play here. Like I assume you're making contemporary commentary on what's happening in the world today by writing characters like this. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I was really, I was using the sort of scaffolding of the novel to explore ideas about womanhood and femininity that really preoccupied me. And the idea of having women who are ambitious, having women who were violent and having women even who are murderesses. But it's always been seen as historically like women murderers are just masculine and they become men. So I was looking within femininity as what female violence looks like and what that rage and what their sort of murders would look like. And just the, and, and, you know, so I was having fun with all those sorts of ideas, but keeping it so in the realm of femininity, like they still, when they go off to their murders, they're still dressed in like ribbons and they have little cakes and they're, good at embroidering <laughs> right and they had their little tic-tac of their shoes and they kind of almost seem like the little girls when they part of the revolution almost seem like a little ballet core because they're just moving uh synchronicity yeah the staging if you will of the novel is such that i'm taken right there i'm taken right into the factories i'm picturing mm-hmm. these people in their hoods and masks and all these things what do you suppose you're saying about family in this particular novel and the nature of particularly sisterhood, I guess, but sibling rivalry, if you will, and, and sibling connection? Because it unfolds in a way, you know, very interestingly. I don't want to give any spoilers away. With No, I don't either. I was trying to be careful. Okay. Well, what I, f- I wanted the family support. Because this was a, a novel that was so centered around women and 
their relationships with each other. And then all, none of the, the characters in my book have any interest in motherhood or becoming married because right, right. they're all kind of wild and they're doing these ridiculous things that they could not be able to do if they had husbands. So it's a group of women who are not at all interested in the family, but of they're forging these other bonds with women. So I think I was saying with family, it's almost sometimes a ruse. Like you huh. think you come from this family, so you should be acting in this certain way. And you think it's you're genetically presupposed, predetermined to be aristocratic or poor. So I was challenging that sort of, you know, it was just something that, why I was interested in the French Revolution where they were actually saying that you can actually, because back then there was, they saw people in different classes as actually different species who could never yeah, yeah, cross yeah. that yeah. line. So yeah. the French Revolution was all about, can a poor person actually be like a real human being and have the same personhood as a rich person? And then in the Victorian times, similarly, because it was right before the first wave of feminism and the question was, can women have a personhood can they also be yeah. people and not be relegated to this strange like a class of womanhood which is i mean that unfortunately is still occurring today right yeah definitely and there was um one of the, the sort of disputes between the revolutionaries were very much about a conversation that's happening today whereas uh marie and sadie who are both the aristocrats in the novel what they want in life is to achieve the same sort of grandeur and splendor that a man has and just yeah. be as glorious. It's because they want to be at the top of the heap. So they're just going to, they're reaching for the same goals that men do. But then at the same time is that that's such a corruption of feminism and right. this, a lot of revolutionaries, especially George, she's like, the point is to dismantle the whole system so that we can dismantle the patriarchy and it, you, know, you don't just have two white wealthy women at the top acting like men and doing especially Marie starts doing all these the exact same things that the male factory workers did so it's about right. like a larger feminism yeah I, I appreciate that and within that can you uh, the same we've been talking a lot about the characters in the book who identify as women for the most part how would you characterize the men in this book uh, because they are also, whether they even realize it or not, driving a lot of the action and mm -hmm. also the source of uh, disdain, but also they're aspirational, like you say, like, oh, I want to be like that. I want to get what that guy has kind of thing. How would you characterize the men? But they also seem dumb and <laughs> and awful on some level. How would you characterize well the men? Because I wanted to center the women, so the men are kind of seen in their roles as husbands or brothers, so they kind of come... They play the role that usually the wives and daughters play in these Victorian novels, where they show up in the rooms yeah. for no particular reason to give some random point of view of life. But I would say men are not especially well re represented in the book. We have Louis, who's kind of the main... Yeah. Murray's father, who is the main male male figure in the book, and he has a really intense, uh, wonderful relationship, I suppose, with his daughter. But he is he's just a womanizer, and he's yeah. always sleeping with maids. And then he he ends up um, you sort of find out that he has just has children all over the poor area. Yeah, and it just 
it makes it so corrupt because he has all these children that he ignores because they're from poor mothers with but Marie, who's the little aristocrat, he just gives her everything in life. Right. Again, I don't want to... Uh, he has no impulse control. He's also, you know, he, he's a beautiful man, but he puts on weight. He just eats. He likes to have sex. He has no sort of... Um, he has no real ambitions. He just wants to enjoy his money and enjoy life. He's like an Epicurean. Yeah. Which, um, you know, leads to his uh, <laughs> oversaturation one day. <laughs> Is is that is he drawn from some amalgam of historical figures? Because he just seems like every dude ever. Does the- he? He was kind of a bit. I wanted him a bit like one of the Louis from from the time, like the Sun King from Versailles, who just kind of he radiates a splendor and grandeur that's he can fill that house with a personality, he has the personality to fill the house and um, bedeck it and all these. Wonderful things, but at the same time, he's buffoonish. Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, based on the action of this book in particular, I'm curious about your general feeling about things like uh, fate or uh, what's the uh, degrees of separation. I don't know about you, but uh, I keep getting these things pop up uh, since the pandemic started where uh, it'll be like a video clip of me from 1995 or 1999, and I'm in a room or I'm in a space and I'm at a concert or something. And as I look around, I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't even know. Th- I know who that is now, but I didn't even know them. Like, we were just in the same space. I, I ended up dating a woman for many years, and we we were both in the same space in 1998. And that's just the way it was. There's some of that happening in this book. Right place, right time, weird, coincidental kind of connections. You yourself, do you have any interest in that sort of thing? I mean, I think you do, but do you have any interest in fate degrees of separation can you believe we know each other kind of stuff i do i mean i play with it a lot like it's a literary device too so it's something that exists within the world of novels because they're contained yeah that's true these covers which is always kind of fascinating to me i mean that does just happen in real life when you just encounter people at the right moments and then sometimes your paths cross a hundred times and then you meet at the exact same at the exact perfect moment to meet or and then too if you start thinking about someone it's just you you shouldn't think about them if you don't want to run into them because they just <laughs> they materialize they manifest yeah them. isn't that weird i find that weird yeah and then i like it when i manifest good people so that's why i only i try to have positive thoughts because if, if i continue to think about a negative person a person who creates negative feelings of me I'm just bringing them towards me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that seems to happen in this book. These characters don't really recognize what the appeal is. or what, Even I feel like, on some level, if I think back on Sadie and Marie, it's an intense relationship, but I don't know that they know what it is. I think they have other relationships, and they kind of know what they are. Certainly, Sadie does, and explores relationships for, as a concept, and by the way, for those who haven't picked up on this, Sadie is a is a writer and uh, and, yes. and uh, an author, and so she is trying to, I think, live as much life as possible for fodder for her work. But anyway, my point was going to be, uh, yeah, there's a there's this sense that they they don't even know Marie and Sadie particularly what their relationship is. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think they don't understand it whatsoever. I when they're children. They just understand when they meet each other, 
all they understand is that they've met each other, their match, because they're both so kind of brilliant and witty, and Marie just masters the whole perfect little Victorian girl thing. Yeah. And Sadie is um, just so obsessed with, like, writing and melancholia and the darkness and just reads a lot. So she's very, very bright. So when they meet, they are the only ones that can sort of hold each other's attention and keep up with one or the other. So that's where it starts. But then as they go through their life, they can't quite understand why they're drawn to each other. But it's the same thing. Like, they can never find anybody else who entertains them and makes them feel alive like the other one does. You know, and that's like, it's when they're apart, they have that feeling when, you know, if you've broken up with a friend or even a romantic relationship and it's just like, nobody matches up. Yeah. It's like, why can't I get that feeling yeah. of just like simpatico, like excitement? Like when you have a conversation, it's like you're writing some philosophical text, even though for someone listening from the outside, perhaps they would not think so, but you're just so excited by each other's ideas and they make you grow. And they bring out some interesting part of you. Right. But those kinds of relationships that you're describing, which are ostensibly friendships, you don't you don't generally consummate those, if you will. So I feel like that's really interesting that to explore relationships in this book as you do where the the dynamic is so intense, but they don't know what to do with it. Exactly. And, and I feel like that's a really important part of it. And it's. It's it's really fascinating, and I, I I hope people check it out. Are you happy with it? Do you, you wish? Do you regret anything? <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, it's just coming out. Some books, I just feel when they come out, I have I don't even want to think about them. I almost feel embarrassed that they're coming out. But for some reason, I just felt really excited about this one going out into the world. You get and, embarrassed um, about your books coming out. Why is that? I don't know, because I just get this feeling that there. I'm just like, oh, that's terrible. What have I done? <laughs> Aren't you like an award-winning, so celebrated bad. author? Why would anyone... You shouldn't feel that way if anyone... Good Lord, at the beginning of this conversation, I was suggesting a plaque be put up in your old apartment. <laughs> You're great. I love I your know, books. I know, but where my, like, my self-esteem sometimes, it's... Uh, yeah. It's always a work in progress, but maybe that's in some ways just this underlying idea that that you're not authentic or valuable or imposter so syndrome. Well, I don't even know if it's imposter syndrome. It's more. I think I I had so much negativity as a child and was oh. raised in a way where I just never had any compliments or reinforcement. So an it's affirmation. hard. Yeah. yeah, an affirmation. So. I just feel like sometimes a loser putting things out. But this one, I, I just felt like the characters had my back. I was like, Sadie Marie, like they're just aristocratic lunatics. They got my back. So I just felt like I was with a group. <laughs> you're, oh, you're women pe- and George is going to like, it's always going to be fine. Your brethren, <laughs> She's going to make it okay. Your brethren is insane, murderous aristocrats. That's what we've learned. Exactly. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. That's your support network. Not good. You know what's funny about this line of conversation here, or this aspect of the conversation, is uh, you and I think we follow each other on Twitter, uh, yeah. and uh, it's been interesting to see you emerge as a true force on that thing. Because I think when you started out, it was everyone did it was it was fine. Everyone was modest. Everything's good. Now you do a thing, and everyone goes bonkers. They're like, "Oh, I share it." Heather's a funny, and then they share it, and it's always very funny. You found your voice a little bit there. Is that fair to say in the last few years? I think so. Yeah, I've really 
Especially I found when they increased the character count, it just allowed for you could actually fit a little story in there. And yeah, I just loved it. I loved the idea of these little haikus, poems, these little pithy statements. And um, yeah, and then I was getting a lot of response yeah. to it. And then I give words of wisdom sometimes. And it, it, it's fun too. Like you have to have a bit of a thick skin on Twitter because yeah. sometimes you give an opinion. Everyone's like, that's, uh, wow, Tether, you're so astute. You're so wise. You're so funny. <laughs> and other times we'll give an opinion. Everyone's just like, why don't you just delete your account and die, woman? <laughs> that is the trade-off of being on Twitter. Do you? Yeah, do you, but but once it's like once you get that thick skin, you just start to enjoy it because it's it's just part of the entering the discourse in a sort of because it, it's fun to shock and provoke and have all sorts of outside ideas. Because one of the things I always find that I always like to do on Twitter is to only have original ideas. Like I don't like whenever, when I've read it's the same tweet that everybody is kind of repeating 500 times. Oh, like a meme, like a, basically like a meme or a construct. Or no, when it's like, there's some issue and then everybody has the exact same opinion about it. Oh, I see. Right, 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 right. Okay. So you, or which should actually be more, divisive or like an opinion if there's a bad review of a book then everybody jumps on that bad review even though they haven't read the book right so there is a slightly there's a slightly mob like french revolution that's i wonder i wonder on twitter which they love people love a pile up and i'm like chill (laughs) why are you piling up you haven't even read the book yet it came out yesterday (laughs) i did wonder about the mobs in your book as they might uh, relate to modern day mob warfare if you will i did really think of that in um the way that the young the very young women in the book kind of create these mobs and to me it was very similar to uh, like Me Too movements on the internet where girls all over the place kind of found one another's voices and just amplified yeah. them. So they come as this uh, little t- Twitter mob of women who are just like, we won't take this. And yeah, men are just terrified. They're just like, how on earth are we letting these young women have any say? Yeah, there's that. How dare they tell us there's, that? There's, we, there's, you know? there's that. But in your book, uh, sometimes the subject of the uh, mob ire are other women. And in some cases, yeah. that will sa- that will save or preserve the legacy a little bit for a short term of these women until they. Re- it, there's a lot of that too. Women, cha- I think you alluded to this earlier. There's women who are asserting their uh, womanhood, but then they start to, as they become more like men, they get some side eye from the other women, being like, "Wait a minute, I thought we were on the same page. You just want the power too." Anyway, that's uh, there's maybe some contemporary echoes there as well. Yeah, exactly. With yeah. every sort of revolutionary left movement, you have these divisions and arguing of how far people want to go. And yeah. if you have an idea, is it excluding other people? And how do you make it so that it includes everybody fairly? Yeah. Well, I wonder if your your enthusiasm for the release of When We Lost Our Heads coincides with your what what I already described as maybe a new confidence in yourself from the support if you will and the the platform you've had on Twitter do you think they're related do you just feel like I'm strong I know what I'm doing I think so it has definitely um yeah because it takes a little bit of bravery yeah to to go on Twitter and throw out an idea yeah so yeah I think too yeah the just um 
I have become more sort of ferocious or radical with my ideas. Yeah. Because I'm like, it's in my head. Why not share it with the world? <laughs> so I was like, okay, guys, I went a little too far, but I'm a polemicist. I'm trying for things, working on some ideas together. You fancy yourself a polemicist? Is that what you just said? I guess you are a polemicist. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of times I just go, you know what I mean? It's like with, with a polemicist, you just kind of go a little bit further and it yeah. seems broader, but it's like for the sake of the argument. So right. we can have, and it's meant to have people push back a little so you can figure out what the actual parameters of an idea should be. Fair enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. Last time we spoke, I believe, was uh, when we talked about the girl who was Saturday night. I'm just looking this up. We did not speak for the Lonely Hearts Hotel, which I also highly recommend to people. Wonderful book. But when we talked about uh, The Girl Who Was Saturday Night, I invoked cinema in a way. Do you remember this at all? I asked you about Wes Anderson. Yes, I remember the conversation exactly. You thought it was similar to The Royal Tenenbaum. Similar. I Was that... Oh, are you... I just you were linking all the characters. I was, I was linking it, but I was also trying... In a way. Were you okay with that? I don't remember. Totally, because actually uh, he kind of plays with history in a similar way that I do, where it's historical fiction, but it's just definitely like a Heather O'Neill joint where it's like, you know, it's like Wes Anderson's The World and all. It, yes. It's there to say what he wants to say and change the aesthetic around. But um, yes, you've created so your own say, universe. Yeah. So all of these, but they're not interconnected, but it's aesthetically similar, right? There's chaos, exactly. Huge, like bigger than life characters. Chaos. I guess I where I'm coming from by invoking that is this is another one of your books where I'm like I want to see this, I want to see it depicted. Like, do you ever write in that sort of sense of like, oh man, can you imagine if this was brought to the big screen or like on a in a theatrical production? Do you ever think about those things as you're writing a book like this? I never think about it while I'm writing it. I'm never thinking of how it would be adapted, but I am a very visual writer. Yeah. So that I'll imagine the scenes in my head, like, and details. Like, I remember in the book, I I really wanted a woman in a crinoline, those giant hoops that went under the dresses, because the, the, the image of a woman standing in literally a cage while trying to make a point and then tippling, topping over, and it yeah. was just so beautiful and unique to me so I do work in a way that's visual so probably an aesthetic would be it would be interesting to see on the film but I'm never thinking about it yeah I can imagine it's a weird that's a weird thing right I've talked to other authors who are like yeah someone uh, what is it the word they optioned it Mm -hmm. Uh, they optioned the book uh, five years ago nothing has happened I'm like oh <laughs> you think the something would why if someone gave a bunch of money towards keeping a thing, why wouldn't they just act on it? But that's common, right? Have you ever even had any entry point into that world? Because I feel like all of your books, I want to see these people. Um, they're all sort of in development, and oh, okay. they have so maybe in a, a couple of years. It's something with maybe they'll all come out at the same time. Like, <laughs> okay. Oh my god. I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, yeah, let's not spoil anything and I, I don't want to talk too businessy, but I just want you to know, I guess what I'm saying is your work transcends the page for me. I love okay. it and I, Thank it you. gets to me and I, and I, vis- I'm very like, I'm reading, I often read at night 
and uh, at bedtime, and I just I I can see it all. And I there's not many authors. It's it's this is more about me and my imagination, probably mm-hmm. or lack thereof. But there's not many authors where I'm like every time I read your work, I'm like. I'm there. I'm in the factory. I'm in the bakery. I'm in the brothel. I shouldn't be in the brothel, but I, I, I shouldn't be there. It's not it's not right, but I'm there. And I, I just want to say that's a testament to you. So thank you for your work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I do spend so much time world building yeah. for those things and like recruiting, like going to the museums to try and find anything about those weird torn down areas of Montreal. Yeah. And they're all little love letters to some extent to Montreal, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's like Montreal, because Montreal was sort of the mystical island of my childhood. So there's always that kind of magical, like it's it's not magical realist, but it's as though I drop a little drop, like a spoonful of magical realism into the novel. So it gives you the feeling that you're reading something that's almost magical, but then it's not. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I get that. And I think when I talk about degrees of separation and fate, maybe I'm alluding to that magic. Just like mm-hmm. that, th- that, that thing that connects people that we don't know why, but we have yeah. to trust it. Like, it, it doesn't really make a ton of sense. But anyway, so the book is out, I believe, February 1st. And again, yeah. it's When We Lost Our Heads. It's brilliant. It's out on HarperCollins. Do you, I know this is hard, uh, particularly when I have authors on, when I ask about future plans, because you don't want to give anything away, but uh, just in the terms of uh, production, this book is done. When did you finish writing this book? Let me ask you that, first of all. Do you remember? Like the last the last little edits and copy edits? Yeah, well, sh- sure, when you felt like you were done. Oh, um, I think it was pretty much sometime last year. It's hard to say because, yeah, I think it was... 2021 I don't know this pandemic it's like within that two year period but I think it was at the beginning of last year so we and we just beginning had a few copy year. edits okay. and copy edits and stuff like that and you know the little mistakes and like do you know sure. you know she's wearing a hat here and the hat was eaten by an alligator two scenes ago and I'm like whoops <laughs> Take that away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. Fair enough. Got it. Got it. Uh, that actually begs a question I didn't ask. Did you start writing this book during the pandemic at all? Or was it done started before that? It was started before that. So I had okay. conceived of the idea and handed in like a first rough draft because of my editor, Jennifer. We always, I give her um, a draft very, very early on so she can get me a feel of what's working or not. Also, or if I should throw it in the garbage. Right. So that was three years ago. And then basically okay. we edited through the pandemic. I only ask because I, when I talk to creative people and they've made something during the pandemic, I guess the obvious question is, do you feel like the pandemic is in here? Do you feel the lockdown? Do you feel like that vibe is in your work? I, I gather you don't in this particular case. I, don't I couldn't have- think of anything. No, not at all, because the whole world of it and all the characters were created before the pandemic. So um, it was the editing process in the pandemic. Yeah, sure. So it's fine. I appreciate nuts and bolts. Always good. My main main question, though, I suppose, is if you finish this, uh, like you said, at the end of 2021 or something or somewhere, whatever you said, (laughs) it doesn't matter specifically. Have you already thought about a next work are you are you working on a follow-up or a, not a follow-up but a next novel yeah my editor and i are already working on another one okay great so, yeah yeah because i always keep writing 
Okay. Well, good. I don't want to pry too much because I'm sure you're not even sure what to say about it at this point, but that's exciting. Any other <laughs> projects or I, I know normally you do book festivals and some sort of tours and stuff like that. Are you going to do any things like that at the at the moment? You know, just as of right now, just Zoom stuff, tons of huh. Zoom stuff. I just, can you hear my dog? I can totally hear your dog. Your dog sounds lovely. Coming in loud and clear and wondering what your... The dog and I are the same. They want to know what your future plans are and whether or not uh, one of us is going to get food. (laughs) Probably. I don't know. No, it's fine. The dog's fine. Dogs are cute. People like hearing dogs on podcasts. Anyway, so you're... Any other... That's it. You've got Zoom things. Otherwise, you're staying... Yeah, Zoom all over until, like, lockdown is over and then um, I'll be out in the world at the festivals. Because I think a lot of the festivals, too, have moved... Event. Everything's, they're still hoping for the fall. Because actually, when my book was coming out in February, everybody thought I could travel. Mm. And they were like planning things to go. Is there, then, any part of, is there any part of you that likes the virtual part? I do like the being sometimes just getting out of bed because I'm like, oh, five minutes. <laughs> you're there. You're right there. You don't have to go anywhere. There's no. Yeah, I like it too. And then it's over and it's like, oh, they've disappeared. (laughs) I can go make a sandwich, feed my dog, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, as opposed to like, oh, now I have to like put all my stuff in a suitcase, like go to a plane. Yeah. But, I mean, I miss miss the live, that live sort of feedback. And I love when you do um, interviews and talks on a stage, you're able to just read the audience of, yeah. of what they're enjoying that you talk about and what they think is a little like untoward. So you're just kind of like, okay, I'll never repeat that anecdote again, <laughs> but I'll definitely tell those ones. But I don't know now because I don't have the audience reaction. So I could be repeating, you know, stories that are just sorted, but nobody in the audience will frown at me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's someone in the front row who's like, <laughs> no, <laughs> like, okay, noted. <laughs> I have heard from some authors in particular, and musicians, obviously, they miss the kind of festival gatherings mm. because it's among the few times like a gaggle of authors is in the same oh, space. I totally miss that. Yeah. And I didn't realize I missed that because you get to them, there's such a like frenzy and yeah, all these kind of like arguments, interesting conversations, trying to duck out somebody. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of fun stuff. It's sort of like we're so isolated as writers that you put us all together and it's like some fascinating um, debate club. Totally. Yeah. That's a good uh, way of putting it. Yeah. So I was always like, oh God, it's so annoying. But now I don't have it. And I'm like, that was wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) I will appreciate them all more. I hope so, yeah. I feel like some of us have taken that stuff for granted a little bit. and Totally, yeah. I feel weird. Anyway, uh, okay, so thank you for uh, this conversation. But before we go, where can people go to learn more about um, this book and, and you? I mentioned your Twitter. Uh, and again, I can say that the it's HarperCollins here in Canada, so harpercollins.ca. Is it available uh, other ways around the world that you're aware of? I don't know how people get their books, but I'm sure they'll follow. Oh, no, them. sorry. I, how do you mean? Sometimes I talk to, like, uh, Suvankam Tamavangsa, and for yeah. some reason her short story book is, like, Bloomsbury in England. Uh, mm. uh, I forget who it was in the States, and then someone else in Canada. That's all I was getting at there. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah, no, totally. So next week it's, it's coming out in Canada and the United States simultaneously. Okay, great. It'll be coming out in the rest of the world 
later in the year, in the fall. And it's HarperCollins in Canada and Riverhead in the United States. There you go. See, it's probably good that I said something dumb that turned out to be smart. I just said it badly. That happens to me. I apologize. But yeah, that's what I was getting at. Okay. And then what about, so your Twitter, what's your Twitter that we were talking about earlier? Lethal heroin, like lethal underscore heroin as in the heroin of a book, which is actually an anagram of my name. Oh, yeah. So it's just Heather O'Neill. What the hell? I didn't even notice that. Heather O'Neill, if you put an anagram, <laughs> it's like lethal I heroin. I see it now. Okay, I didn't know what that was. But I... you can look up Heather O'Neill <laughs> on Twitter and I'll come up. Okay. Do you have any other <laughs> socials or websites or anything you want to tell people about? Oh, yeah. Arizona and I, my daughter, we have uh, an Instagram account that we started together, which is a bookstagram account where we just talk about the different books we're reading so people can follow that. Oh, okay, cool. Does Arizona... If they want great reviews by us and book selection so it's a fun little book club we started on instagram called o'neill reads o'neill reads yes i think i've come across that okay we'll take a look for that too does arizona have your uh, writing bug is she writing she's working on it because she's also very visual and an artist so she's working on a graphic memoir oh cool a graphic memoir Mm. wow a memoir already young she's young isn't she is she memoir yeah, age? It's about a part of her childhood. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I look for and and that's that's ongoing. That's a project in the works. Yeah, and she does films, and she does like a lot of. Have you seen her book trailers? She has book trailers now for John and Quarterly. Oh no, I don't think I have. I'll take a look, or maybe I didn't realize that uh, they were Arizona's work. I will take a look. Yeah, it's just film. She's a little film. She's all these interesting, visually odd, kooky aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful things. And we collaborate okay. together all the time. So. Okay, I will track these down. I want to check them out. Okay, well, Heather, as always, uh, it's very nice to speak with you and spend any time with you at all. Uh, congratulations again on this wonderful novel, When We Lost Our Heads, and I hope people read it because it's wonderful. My wife just started reading it, and she's like, oh, my God, the opening scene. That's all. That's as far <laughs> as she got. But she's going to dig in. I'm going to put it back on her uh, nightstand there. Thank you so much. I wish you the best luck with everything in the future, and I hope you enjoyed yourself. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back in your studio. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thank you very much again for listening to this episode, uh, the 664th episode of Creative Control featuring Heather O'Neill, which is at least partially teched by Heather's daughter, Arizona. Thank you, Arizona. I appreciated that. Again, this show, Creative Control, is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode you're looking for or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my monthly newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. That's my website. Also, you can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative, or you can follow me directly on Twitter and on Instagram at vishkana. Also, you can, if you like, you can visit patreon.com slash Control. To make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast. And I should say $6 or more grants you access to exclusive content. Uh, in fact, there's going to be some bonus content from this Heather O'Neill episode. We went OT, overtime, and had a little chat about uh, one of her current obsessions, and it was quite interesting. So uh, that's one example. There's lots of, once you, if you pay $6 or more, you get access to all sorts of stuff from the, from the past as well. So I hope you will go to patreon.com slash creative control and make a flexible 
$6 or more donation or whatever amount you want. But $6 gets you that uh, bonus stuff. Also, if you want to receive a Creative Control t-shirt, just message me on Patreon and I'll get you one while supplies last. A reminder that uh, there's no royalties uh, for podcasters. It's just uh, ad sales, if you will, those uh, those ads you hear, which are insertions by the company that helps me put out the show. But really, the, the heart of it is the Patreon. So if you've thought about donating and you haven't... Uh, uh, you know, done it yet? Again, patreon.com slash creative control to support the show financially. Thanks again to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, respectively, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in kind support for this show. Thanks as always to my friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on the podcast each week. You can learn more about him at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for listening to this episode with Heather. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll check out her wonderful new novel, When We Lost Our Heads. I hope you found the discussion intriguing enough to go seek out the book. It's really great. And other than that, I hope you subscribe to this podcast or follow it and uh, ask your friends to do the same and spread the word about the show. That all helps. It means a lot to me, so thank you. And that's all. I will talk to you very soon. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.